0: Let me do this. Let me pray for us before we start our time together, and, and then we'll dive into the end of Ephesians with one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, um, our prayer tonight is, is simple, but it's so important. I pray that each one of us here tonight, no matter where we are, no matter where we are in our state of belief or unbelief of how closely we're clinging to you and your promises, God, I pray that tonight we would leave this place fulfilled in you more than when we walked in that we would see your precious promises that are fulfilled in Jesus and that would see that as the foundation for the life of loving you that you've promised to us as your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Okay, so I know some of you, some of you are familiar faces because of uh, my work with uh, the crossing and the high school ministry. I know some of you I recognize uh, because my wife, Jessie, works with the Greek girls ministry, all the small groups here at Veritas. Uh, Some of you might know Jessie. So I recognize some faces. Um, A lot of you I don't know, but no matter who you are, what you probably don't know about me is that for a season of my life, I tried in between the school competitive swimming. In um, my season of life, I mean one summer in between the school years of my middle school career, between 6th and 7th grade. And uh, when I say swimming career, that's a really generous term uh, because I have very little skill when it comes to swimming. I have just enough to stay alive and not get the lifeguard called on me, but not enough to like, win any races. So, um, so I had a short-lived uh, time as a swimmer. Um, but what happened one day, there was a memory that sticks out pretty vividly uh, from my time swimming in high school. We were at a swim meet, um, it was at Park Hill Aquatic Center in Kansas City, yeah, represent that's right. Yeah, still love. Um, at the Park Hill Aquatic Center to begin with, full experience because it's middle school, right? And it's kind of an awkward, uh, awkward stage of life to begin with. Um, but I met this race and the, the team that we're competing against doesn't really matter. It's a small school. So the coach feels like he can kind of like pull some cards that he doesn't normally play at the swim meet. And so my swim coach walks up to me and says, Jeff, today's your chance. Today, today is your opportunity to seek glory in the pool. I want you to swim the individual medley, and I didn't know anything. I are, like, are you talking about a salad? I'm about to eat a medley. Like, why well, don't know. Where, so I, he had to explain to me, no, Jeff. What this means is that you are going to swim every single stroke in this race, and, and that's what you have to do. You don't have a choice. Like, you can't swimmers. And so over and over and over again, like you have to use every stroke in the in the repertoire of uh, swimmers. And so that's great, but the problem for me is I can't do the butterfly stroke. Like to this day, I can't, there's something hardwired between my brain, the rest of my body where the the dolphin kick thing that you do and the arm thing that you do that they say is like a butterfly, I don't really know. Um, I just can't do it. I physically am am unable to do it. My parents like paid for lessons, couldn't figure it out, didn't happen. So um, I'm absolutely terrified, kind of giving a nod to the lifeguard like, hey, you might need to be like... Wake up! Like this, I'm gonna call on your services here in a second. Um, so I get on the starting block. I, I'm so nervous because I'm butterfly stroke. What to do? Like the thing about the butterfly stroke is when it's time to do the butterfly stroke and you don't know how to do it, the only thing for you to do is kind of move in the water and try to get have forward advance in the water. And so um, I'm just. I'm having a horrible time of it because there's girls that I have crushes on that are there, and I'm just making a fool of myself. And, you know, I'm in middle school wearing a Speedo, so it's not like I had anything going for me in the first place. But, <laughs> but I remember starting, starting the race and thinking to myself, seriously, what are the chances that I even finish this race? Like, seriously, I don't even know if I can actually get to the end of this race. Like, the thought went through my head in 50 meters, will I even know if I can make it? Like, will I even be moving in the water 50 meters from now? I don't know if I can make it. And looking back, it's kind of a funny, awkward memory that I can kind of hold on to and remember and not take myself too seriously. But there's a real important sense in which that's a fair question for the Christian life, isn't it? We go through the day-to-day, week-to-week, kind of get in a routine. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it's an important question for us to bring to the table. Five years from now, will I still be a Christian? 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now. It seems so far away. But, but as my involvement in Christian activities and in Christian life, a guarantee that I will still love Jesus and I to get into a kind years from now. And so I think it's easy for you and I to get into a kind of cruise control version of Christianity where you just hit the cruise control button and I think, okay, I'm going to stuff now. I'm in a small group. I don't really need to worry about the future because, you know, I'm involved now. Surely i am be involved later. But, but the problem is that the idea of the cruise control Christian is a foreign concept to the Bible. And the sad truth is there's so many stories of people who that's been in their experience that they've lived a cruise control Christianity and they've ended up punting their faith later in life. So there's a story of a young man um, A Christian family, dad was a pastor, grew up going to church, hearing about uh, high school students through Jesus, hearing the gospel, um, got really involved in serving with high school students, would meet up with high school students, help stir their love for Jesus. He was asking them questions, keeping them accountable, going to summer camp with them. He was really good at music. So in college, he ended up serving as a worship leader for his college ministry. And he was so good at that, he was so faithful to his duties as a worship leader that he ended up working for a church after college as a worship director and time went by and small decisions were made here and there nothing big but small decisions were made day after day and small perspective changes happened day after day that led to something really different than what he expected uh live with a college he was married to he ended up he divorced his wife to move in to uh live with a college girl that he had met He ended up leaving his job at the church, forsaking his faith, abandoning his love for Jesus. And I bet if you would have asked that guy five years before, hey, do you think you're going to abandon the love of Jesus? That wouldn't have been on his radar at all. We have to be willing to ask the question in 5, 10, 15, 30 years from now, we'll all be in totally different phases of life, but will we still have a love for Jesus? It's a fair question for all of us, and it's a good reminder that we can't live in this kind of cruise control lifestyle of Christianity. And as we come to the end of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus tonight, I think of that church, of the church of hope and promise to that church, and looking at the experience of that church, of the church in Ephesus, will give us a little bit of a picture of God's hope of redeeming us as people who are prone to leave the God that we love. So... Let's do this. Let's catch up to the very end of Ephesians, Paul's epistle to the church uh, of Ephesus, and we're gonna go Ephesians 6, 23 to 24. This is what Paul says. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So in a lot of ways, Paul ends his letter to the church in Ephesus by this all semester and you've cruised that he's unpacked throughout the entire epistle you guys have gone through this all semester and you've seen how Paul really unpacks and puts on display the glorious grace that God has for us in Jesus Christ that we were dead in our sin and trespasses by nature we're children of wrath but God in his mercy saves us and so Ephesians is this wonderful letter unpacking the truths of Christianity for us uh, to understand how God is at work in our lives through his grace. But but here's my question. After getting this letter from Paul, what ends up happening to the church in Ephesus? Surely they keep going and they love God and they, they don't run into any roadblocks of faith. But I think when we 10, 20, in happens to the Ephesian church, it's illuminating for us as we think about living the Christian life, 10, 20. 30 years from now so let's look at what's going on the ephesian church 30 years after paul's letter 30 years after uh, getting paul's letter uh, here's what is described about the church in ephesus this is in revelation 2 so this is jesus dictating a letter through the apostle john to the church in ephesus 30 years after paul's epistle here's what jesus says to the church in ephesus i know your works Your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not take, and you have not to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So things are going okay, right? Like the Ephesians church, they care about having right doctrine, about believing the right things, about making sure that when people say they're Christians, they really mean it. They're working hard. They're toiling. The Ephesian church has a lot of things going for it. If you were to walk up to it and look at it, it look like a pretty healthy church at first. But often it's the good things that we do in the name of Jesus that aren't rooted in Jesus that cause us to abandon the love of God. What does Jesus go on to say? In Revelation 2.4, Jesus goes on first. I have against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That is pretty hard, doesn't it? You're doing everything right. You're working hard. You're protecting correct doctrine. Your theology is on point. But the one thing that you need 30 years after getting the letter from Paul is the one thing you don't have. You've abandoned the love of Jesus that you started with. And my question is, as somebody who's prone to abandon the love of God in my life, my question is, why? Why would this church that got the magisterial letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, the book that we now call Ephesians, why would they abandon the love of Jesus? There are a lot of reasons that we could talk about, but it's really helpful. So it has a way of thinking through our tendency to abandon Jesus' love in a way that's really helpful. So we're going to go Old Testament. We're going to go uh, to the book of Jonah. And this is a prayer that Jonah makes to God in the belly of the great fish. This is what Jonah says. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Think about that. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. There might be any number of reasons why you and I are prone to leave the love of Jesus, why the church in Ephesus left Jesus' love after 30 years. But at root, at the foundation of it, it's our tendency to cling to, do you know what you mean to Jesus? So think about 30 years from now, do you know what you would be prone to cling to besides Jesus that would cause you to abandon the love of God? Like, do you know yourself well enough to answer that question? The things that you're prone to cling to and love more than Jesus now, are those the same things that might tempt you to abandon the love of God later in life? I know that thirty years seems like a long way away. It does to me. I'll be fifty-eight years old. Like I'll be like either trying to be retired. Or I'll be like a greeter at Walmart. Then I don't know what my future holds when I'm fifty-eight. But like, life is going to look different. And the, th- the same thing's true for you. Like some of you are going to be skyrocketing your careers, and some of you are going to be struggling to find work on Monster.com. Like, some of you won't. Are going to have uh, marriages and kids. You might have kids graduating from high school. Some of you won't. But the one thing, the one thing that's on the table to think about. 30 years from now is whether or not you will still love Jesus. That's the biggest question for all of us. And just in case we think that 30 years from now is too far away to think about, I want to remind you of that story at the very beginning of tonight, the guy who was working in a church, who is involved, who was doing all the right things, but just a matter of years after he was doing those things, he abandoned Jesus' love. It doesn't take a full 30 years, but the decisions that we make today build us into the people that we'll become. They build up in decisions being made. We'll change, compound interest builds up. That every decision will lead to different decisions being made. We'll change our perspective ever so slightly. And so when we don't live with the end in mind in the Christian life, if we're not looking at the end of the Christian life and thinking about how do I get there, then we betray the fact that we're taking our love for Jesus lightly. So if we're gonna take our love for Jesus seriously, we need to think about how we can still love Jesus in 30 years, in 40 years, to the end of our lives. It'd be helpful almost if we had a kind of early detection system for, for loving Jesus and an early detection system for what are the idols that I might cling to and that cause me to abandon the love of Jesus. You can kind of think of it like, again, like the miners, you know, back in the day before modern technolo- technology, like, Poor canaries, man, like the miners would take a canary in a cage into the coal mines, wherever they were mining, and the, the reason that they had the canary there was that a mine could appear to be safe from the outside, could even be, appear to be safe from the inside, but there was an invisible, toxic gas that could be in the atmosphere that could kill them if they weren't careful. And the reason the canary was so helpful is that the canary would always die before the miners died. So the miners could look at the dead canary and say, oh, it's not safe here. It looks like it's okay. It looks like everything's going to be all right, but it's actually deadly in here. In the same kind of a way, you and I happen in our lives to cause canary in the mine of our souls. Because the changes that happen in our lives that cause us to abandon the love of Jesus don't happen overnight. They're little decisions that are made day in and day out, little perspective changes that occur that slowly but surely, not in days and weeks and months, but year after year after year, our tendency to cling to idols leads us to abandon the love of Jesus. So, what are some of these idols that we can be on the lookout for, that we can have on our radar, if we have a canary in the mind of our souls to help us be aware of these things? Um, if you're a living and breathing human being, then relationships for you will be one of the biggest canary mm-hmm. beings to- of your soul. Relationships, God created us to be relational beings, to feed off of relational connections. So it makes sense for you and I that our relationships are going to be occasions in which our love for Jesus will either be stirred or will be starved. The relationships that we choose to be engaged in for the rest of our lives, not just now, but 30 years from now, they will either stir our love for Jesus or they'll starve our love for Jesus. Fair question. Do you have people in your life right now, deep, genuine friendships where people can ask you really hard questions and you can give them really honest answers and they know when you're not really well? Do you have relationships where people know you really well? They know the real you really well? Like it's easy for us to get and get used to Christian community and kind of turn that on cruise control and we cling to this idol of individuality, of independence, of I can kind of do it on my own. I don't really need people around me. But one thing that we know for sure that we're relational beings and that unless we're cultivating friendships, with people that are helping us see the idols that we're prone to cling to, then we run the risk of starving our love for Jesus instead of stirring it as time goes by. Uh, Some of you in this room, I know some of you here tonight will be confronted at some point in your life if you aren't being confronted with it now with the question, should I engage in a room meet somebody who isn't really helping me love Jesus more? Should I engage in a romantic relationship with somebody that I really like, that, that likes me, that makes me feel good, that satisfies a deep part of my soul? Should I do that even if I know that that person isn't going to help me love Jesus anymore? And I'm not talking about, like, the obvious choices. Like, I'm not saying, like, the people who are obvious people that we can't date, like mercenaries, drug dealers, like Walter White. Like, of course, those are all, those are all off the table. What I'm talking about, the, the thing about these worthless idols that we cling to is that they're subtle. And they they unpack themselves slowly over time. So I'm talking about even people who might, by worldly standards, appear to be the good guy or the good girl. They might be a nominal Christian. Nothing. Just to having a love for Jesus or helping you grow in your love for Jesus, there's nothing. That's a really hard question. That's a really heavy question. Um, the reality is, so I... I I uh, emailed a bunch of pastors last week, and I asked, you know, are there some stories that you can share about people who have kind of abandoned their faith? Uh, you know, just people who looked like they had it all together, people who were going to be elders, people who were going to be leaders in the church, people who were going to be pastors one day who ended up ditching their faith later in life. And the biggest common denominator for every single story was a romantic relationship where the other person didn't love Jesus where the question was brought to the table of the love for Jesus was always being this person or loving Jesus, and when the other person was chosen, the love for Jesus was always abandoned because the love for Jesus was starved and not stirred. You might be kind of wondering, like, okay, this is a little bit heavy-handed. Like, is this really that big of a deal? Like, can't I just kind of date somebody I'm not sure about, see what happens? I think a helpful way to think about that uh, comes from a quote uh, in Tim Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage. Tim Keller says says this in his book, this is so helpful for me. If your partner doesn't share your faith, then he or she doesn't truly understand it as you do from the inside. And if Jesus is central to you, then that means that your spring of your life, they understand you. He or she doesn't understand the mainspring of your life, the ground motive of all you do. When two people marry who have a common faith in Christ, each one knows something significant about the other's fundamental motivations and views of life. If, however, you marry someone who doesn't share your most deeply held and core beliefs, then you will repeatedly make decisions that your partner won't be able to fathom at all. This is big. That part of your life, and is the most important part of your life, will forever be opaque and mysterious to your spouse. Tim Keller goes on to say that one of two things happen when we choose another person over loving Jesus. Either our desire to be close and away because there's no way that they can understand our love for Christ, our desire to be closer to Christ, to grow in union with him. Either that will happen, the person we pushed away, or we push Jesus away. We push Jesus away for the sake of receiving love from someone else. Those are the two possible outcomes. In human relationships, we can either stir our love for Jesus, or we can starve it. Another big canary in the mine of our souls that can help us uh, keep our eyes peeled for idols that are worthless, but that we cling to, that lead us to abandon Jesus' love, is the idol of busyness, the worthless idol of our calendars, And if you're like busyness to the idol, I can say, yes, my name is Jeff and I'm addicted to my calendar, to busyness, to the idol. I cling to the idol of being the person who just does a lot of stuff to feel better about myself. Um, But the craziness is that when we do these kinds of things, when we jam-pack our schedules with an incessant list of things to do, when we pack our resumes with just a long list of activities to to feel better about ourselves, when our email signatures just go on and on and on and on, and I'm kind of wondering, like, I didn't know this many acronyms in the world. Like, this is impressive. Like, I'm not making fun. Like, this is me. Like, this is me. Um, When we do that, we're clinging to the idol of busyness in our lives. And my question, no matter where you are on that spectrum of the crazy, you are on the middle of just next phase of life when I get to the next phase, um, no matter where you are on that spectrum, my question to you is this. This is the question I have for myself. What are you so afraid of? Like seriously, what are you afraid of? Our busyness is an idol that we hide behind. And we hide when we're afraid of something. Could it be that in 30 years you're like me, that in 30 years you're afraid that you might be irrelevant? Are you afraid of the fact that in 30 years people won't know who you are and won't care that they don't know who you are? That maybe your life feels like it matters now in this world, in this life, but then eventually in you and you cling to the world, will be taken away and you'll be forgotten? If that's you and you cling to the worthless idol of busyness like me, here's the promise for you. There's nothing that you or I can add to our schedules that will in any way change the love that Jesus has for us. There's nothing that we can add to our schedules or resumes or email signatures that will affect or add to God's love for us in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says that when I I come, I come to give life and give it abundantly. That abundance can't be added to with our idol of busyness. And so when we cling to that, our lives slowly but surely suffocate our love for Jesus. So it turns out that we're 30, 40, 50, sanity of waiting. We're still waiting for that next phase of life to come it's just a treadmill of insanity of waiting for next phase next phase once i'm married once i have kids once i have multiple kids once those kids are out of high school once they're out of college once we get that retirement home once we get to the next phase but the problem is that you and i need something that transcends our phases of life and the only thing that transcends the phases of life for you and i is the love of jesus and jesus himself But what if you're like our friends in Ephesus, and you abandon the love of Jesus while having the appearance of having it all together? You might have great doctrine. You might know all the right things. You might be, do you have a circle of Christianity? But uh, my question for you is, do you have a Christless Christianity? Have you replaced the love with Jesus for a love of yourself? That's what I do. I do that all the time. Jesus confronts people like you and me if you're prone to cling to a Christless Christianity. Let's look at John 5, John 5, 39 and 40. Jesus is addressing the religious leaders of his day. And Here's what Jesus says. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus when we're doing, reminds us that it's often in the name of our faith. It's sometimes even in the name of Jesus when we're doing stuff that we abandon Jesus. If this is the canary in the mine of your soul and can bring to light and illuminate idols that you cling to, what do you think Jesus would say to you? Would Jesus say you fill your schedule with incessant church activities and involvement in small groups and conversations with your small group leader just so that you can have eternal life, but you refuse to come to me? Or you read all the right books and podcasts, all the right pastors, and you do all the right moves so that people get your approval within your ministry, yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. And those are all good things. Like, I love to abandon the love. But when our Christian activity replaces our love for Jesus, we're setting ourselves up to abandon the love of Jesus. Here's a big question Um, When Veritas is no longer a part of your life, will Jesus go away too? It's a serious question. When Veritas is no longer a part of your life, when you're not in college anymore and this isn't your home, will, will it just be Veritas that you leave or will you leave Jesus too? Because what we tend to do is we replace Jesus with our ministry involvement. Um, some of us have a tendency to put our trust in these things and uh, we've seen like Veritas. Time again, people, friends that I have, People who've been involved in college ministries like Veritas, who've been leaders, who've been interns, who've led small groups, who've met people at Calde's to talk about what they're struggling with, people who are podcasting the right sermons, people who are reading Tim Keller and John Piper books, people who are making all the right moves to advance their Christian resume, but then once they leave Veritas, they leave their love for Jesus as well. I'm not saying that it's possible for us to lose our faith. I'm not saying it's possible for somebody to be a Christian and not be a Christian. Know this, if you're trusting in Jesus as the savior of your life, if you're trusting in God's promises for you and will go on as ultimate treasure of your life, then God's assurance to you is that your faith will go on until the end of your life. But what I am saying is this, it's possible for some of us to be tricking ourselves into thinking that our involvement level our activity level, and our responsibilities within ministry somehow equate to a love for Jesus. If our Christianity lacks Christ and it goes unaddressed for a length of time, then we are setting ourselves up for leaving the love of Jesus that we started with. So if all this is true, if all these canaries in the mind of our soul are exposing idols that we're clinging to besides, how does anybody finish the Christian Going to abandon the love of Jesus just like the church in Ephesus? Then my question is, how does anybody finish the Christian life? Like honestly, how do I, I cling to every single one of the idols we've talked about tonight. What chance do I, Jeff Parrott, have of 20, 30, 40 years from now, what chance do I have of living the Christian life until my time here on this earth is done? Paul's ending to the letter uh, to the church in Ephesus gives us a a word of encouragement, if you are like me. What does Paul think that the church in Ephesus needs more than anything else? What does Paul know that you and I need more than anything else to finish the Christian life, to still be loving Jesus 30 years from now? Church in Ephesus, and says, let's look at Paul's final, final words again and see what he says to the church in Ephesus and says to us. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith, From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible, with love that's undying, with love that's not decaying, it's not going away, with love that's eternal. Grace with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Paul's intentionally ending his letter to the church in Ephesus in a really similar way to the way that he started it emphasizing the peace that Jesus gives us, the the peace that Paul says that he himself is, we're saved. Emphasizing the love that God, God has for us, by his grace we're saved through faith. He's reminding us of all the promises that he's unpacked in this entire letter. So what's the one thing that you and I can be sure of 30 years from now? I don't know anything about my life 30 years from now. The one thing that I am assured of, the one thing that Paul assures the Ephesian church of is that God's love for them is not going away. The peace and love from God that I started the letter with, I'm ending the letter with because the peace and love that comes from God through Jesus Christ isn't going away in your life. That's the one constant. That's the one hope that you have to cling to of finishing out, you initiated in life of loving Jesus for the rest of your life the very grace that got you initiated the very grace that started you in the christian life is going to be the very grace that takes you to the end of the christian life paul ends his message with a word of hope that it's this love that's going to carry you to the end that it's this peace this shalom that jesus brings that will carry you to the end but then the, paul also ends with a hope in verse 24 when he says grace be with all who love our lord jesus christ love incorruptible Every day of my life, literally every single day of my life, God has been exposing the idols that I cling to, that make me and love for him. And every day of my life, I need him to keep doing that. And my word of encouragement to all of us tonight is that when we beg the question in 30 years, will I still love Jesus, that's not an opportunity for God to condemn you. That's an opportunity for God's grace to illuminate those idols in your life. Like, if we are willing to be honest enough to ask the question, in 20, 30, 40 years from now, will I still be loving Jesus? That is an occasion, that is an invitation for God's grace to intersect our lives where we are now and show us those small decisions, those small perspective changes that over time might cause us to abandon Jesus' love. It's the very love of God and his grace that causes us to ask the question and sign of his love and work a Christian. And God's exposure of this by His grace is a sign of His love at work in our lives, and part of our hope that we can love Jesus with a love incorruptible. Um, at the beginning, I mentioned that race, the individual medley that I had to swim, and, and totally just destroyed my reputation at Plaza Middle School. Um, it was unfortunate. Um, the truth is, and at the end of the day, um, I actually finished the race. Uh, the lifeguard didn't have to intervene. Everything ended up okay. I got to the end of the wall, and I got out of the pool um, minutes after everybody else had finished. Um, actually, I think most of them were kind of drying off, like all the way by the time I got done. Um, to many people, when I got out of the pool, I started to get a sympathy applause from people. <laughs> And if you, if you haven't got the sympathy applause, you just need to know there's nothing quite like the sympathy applause in life. Like, because the sympathy applause is essentially saying this, like, you didn't do anything to impress us. We're just happy because you finished. We're just happy because you're alive and you got out of the pool. Um, uh, it's really funny, but, but think about it for a second. Isn't that kind of true for us in the Christian life? When we finish the Christian life... And we love Jesus. If we're loving Jesus 30 years from now, it's not because we're amazing. I didn't finish that race, the individual medley, because I, was, I had good, I finished that race I knew what I was doing at all or because I was strong or powerful or graceful in the water. I finished that race because the water was holding me up. I finished that race because of buoyancy and the fact that if I lay on my belly, I will float. Like, that's what got me to the end. Um, but, but if you think about it in the Christian life, Here's, here's the key to, for us loving Jesus in 30 years. God, we're going to royally screw up. We have idols that we're prone to cling to. God, by his grace, will expose those idols in our lives, causing us to run back to God, run back to Jesus who purchased us with his blood. And it's gonna be messy. It's not gonna be pretty. When we, uh, pretty. When we finish the Christian life, it's because God got them. It's not because we're superstar Christians. If we finish the Christian life, It's because God got us there. It's because God's grace, the love of Jesus, was sustaining us the entire time. Um, As the worship team comes back up, um, here's my hope for all of us tonight. And it's the same hope that Paul had for the church in Ephesus. Uh, At the end of Ephesians, Paul's promise and Paul's Paul's hope, my hope is that you would grow more and more enamored with the love of Jesus that you wouldn't get tired of it. I know that we go through seasons where it gets repetitive and normal and we think we kind of get it, but my prayer and my hope for you is that you would continue to grow more and more. That God, by his grace, would expose the idols that we cling to. That by his grace, God would show us ways that 30 years from now, we might be prone to abandon his love. But then my prayer for you also is that you would know the depth and length and height and depth and you would know the love of Jesus that surpasses any kind of understanding because that's the love that takes us to the end of the Christian life that sustains us even though we're messed up even though we cling to idols it's the very grace of God that starts us in the Christian life that takes us to the end of the Christian life so my prayer for you is that you would continue to love Jesus with a love that's everlasting because Jesus loves you with a love that's everlasting